When you see evil, suffering, and disasters taking place in the world, what are your thoughts about God? When at the personal level you go through times of adversity that leave you reeling emotionally, how does that impact your spiritual life? Do you struggle with doubts about God's love, his wisdom? Do you wonder if God is really, really in control? Do you question, does he know what he's doing? Life can bash us and smash us, leave us shocked and shattered, weak and wounded. And that's why we need a biblical understanding of the nature of God. And that's why a few weeks ago, I began a series called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. Suffering in life is a given. And we need to have an understanding of the purposes of God, at least the nature of God, in those sufferings. Divine sovereignty could be defined a number of ways, but when I say God is sovereign, I mean that he is in total control over all events that unfold in the universe, and God has the freedom to do as he pleases. He doesn't answer to a committee. He certainly doesn't answer to Wayne Wicks or to you. His authority is absolute and his will is irresistible. Whatever he ordains will surely come to pass and whatever he ordains is just and right and good. Concerning divine sovereignty, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by the world. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. I want to look at three main thoughts. They're closely related. God's sovereignty is universal. It is a mystery often, and it is irresistible. Listen to Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. In other words, he sits on the throne of the universe, and he answers to no one. Whatever he pleases, God does. Whatever he pleases is just and right and good. He is independent. He is autonomous, answering to no one. No power, demonic or human, can thwart his purpose. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and has worked into the grand scheme of things all the actions of everybody everywhere. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. There is a view popular in evangelicalism called open theism, which says that 
The future is open. It is unknown even to God, and God learns as he goes along. That is completely unbiblical. I declare the end from the beginning, God says. I know everything about everything all the time, completely, totally. Jerry Bridges says, if there is a single event in all the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, we cannot trust him. Why? Because it means he is not in control. That event or force that happens outside of God's sovereign will is more powerful than God's sovereign will. So the future is up for grabs. Nothing is certain. And I don't believe in that kind of God. I believe that most of us here today would acknowledge that nothing is more valuable than our souls, than the eternal welfare of our souls. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? This past week, the owner of the New York Yankees, George Steinbrenner, died suddenly of a massive heart attack. Steinbrenner was a powerful man. He was a controversial figure. He was extremely wealthy. I don't know his relationship to God. I don't know if he had any faith. But his wealth and fame did him no good in the hour of death. He needed Jesus. I hope he had Jesus. The Apostle Paul did. Listen to what he says. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What had Paul entrusted to him? His soul, his eternal welfare. And some Christians think this way, well, I, I trust God with the eternal welfare of my soul. I believe the Bible when it says that everybody who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ has everlasting life and will go to heaven. I have no doubt about that. But trusting God in the trials of life, I find that difficult. Let me state the issue more clearly. I know God will take care of me after I die. I'm just not so sure he'll take care of me before I die. You say, whoa. That's weird thinking. That is very weird thinking. That's strange thinking. When we question the love of God and doubt the wisdom of God because of adversities here and now, we may be saying, I don't think God's sovereignty kicks in until I die. Oh, no, God will take care of you before you die if you are his child, and God will take care of you after you die. We all question the ways of God. We struggle to make sense of what is unfolding in the world and in our personal lives. We ask, what is going on? What is God up to? These are valid questions. But we all so ought to say, I may not know what God is up to, but he knows what he is up to, and therefore I need to trust him. So, Lord, help me to trust, not figure it out but to trust. God's sovereignty predates our birth. Our arrival on the scene when we were born did not surprise God. 
God never has to scramble to figure out what to do in our lives when adversity comes. He is never surprised when his children suffer or when any other suffering is going on in the world. There's a difference between God's moral will and his sovereign will. Author Jerry Bridges makes this statement, God permits for reasons known only to him people to act contrary to and in defiance of his revealed will. But he never permits them to act contrary to his sovereign will. We can violate the moral will of God, that's what sin is. We can never break or defeat or destroy the sovereign will of God. Sin is whatever God forbids us not to do, that is sin. Right and wrong find their definition in the nature of God, not in society, not in my feelings, not in my preferences, but in God and his word. And God has revealed his moral will partially in our conscience, fully in the Bible. So does man's violation of the moral will of God, when, he, when man breaks, breaks the commandment, when he does evil, does that nullify the sovereign will of God? Absolutely not. If the sinful actions of people prevented God from fulfilling his sovereign will, then those sinful actions are more powerful than God, and God is not God. Scripture teaches that man is constantly sinning against God, constantly violating his revealed will. But what God has ordained, even in spite of that evil, or even because of that evil, will certainly come to pass. Listen carefully. The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. There is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. Nothing can avail or succeed against the Lord. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? One interpretation of this, if God has determined a calamity to happen, nothing we can do can prevent it from happening. Lamentations 3.37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. All these verses say the same thing. We can make plans and we should make plans and there's nothing wrong with making plans as long as those plans are in agreement with the revealed will of God in the Bible. But our plans, even if they are good plans, can succeed only if they are consistent with the sovereign will of God. No one can say, I will do this or I will do that and have it happen unless God has ordained that it happen. We need to acknowledge and submit to the sovereign will of God as we plan for the future. James 4, 13 is an interesting passage. Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today, tomorrow, we will go do such and such a city, we'll go and do such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. 
Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. For as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all boasting is evil. Man proposes, God disposes. So we can plan a course of action. I'm not saying we shouldn't plan a course of action. If it is in agreement with the will of God, plan the course of action. But in the final analysis, the determining factor is not what we will to do, but what God wills to have happen. So we must not presume that our plans, even if they're good plans, will be realized. All too often, we set out as people in a certain direction. We make decisions involving relationships or work or finances or some other area without, without considering biblical principles, without seeking guidance from God in humble prayer. And our plans may succeed for a while, but then they begin to unravel. And we wonder, why is my plan not working? Why is my decision not bringing the desired results? And the bottom line could be, we never sought the guidance of God. We never brought that plan under the authority of the Word of God. We just wanted it to happen. And if it's not part of God's sovereign will, He will ensure it will not succeed. Everyone who lives in rebellion against God's moral will, that is, lives in defiance of the commands of Scripture, will be held accountable in the day of judgment. The song says, I did it my way for a little while, but the final word is God's, and he will do it his way. This truth of the sovereignty of God should be an encouragement and stimulus to trusting God. See, because no evil can befall me unless God allows it. No harm can come to me unless God has willed it. And he does allow his people to suffer. A book that I purchased some time ago, not a big book, but a good book, called It's Not Fair. Finding hope when times are tough. And there are times when we say, God, it's not fair. And you know, it isn't fair. But just because something isn't fair doesn't mean that God has not included that in his sovereign will. Jesus was crucified. That wasn't fair. And he did predict that his people would be persecuted. That should be no surprise. Paul says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we need to be careful how we react when in our estimation, it's not fair. If we become angry and bitter and cynical, we are sinning we may be resisting the sovereign will of God. We say, it's not right that they do that to me. No, it isn't. I'm not saying it's right. 
but it could be part of God's sovereign will, even though it's a violation of his moral will. So what do we do? What do we do when it's not fair? When people say things to us, do things to us that hurt us, what do we do? We do what Jesus said, and this is a hard saying. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, if you say, if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you, that's the way the world operates. No big deal. You don't need Jesus for that. You need Jesus to love those who cause you pain. Jesus says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the unbelievers, do that? Every one of us, either, either now or in the past or in the future, has have people in our lives that do not relate to us lovingly and compassionately, and they hurt us. That will happen. No doubt about it. Do we respond with the love of Christ? That's the issue here. Will we get closer to God? God controls our experiences of pain and suffering. And neither the willful, malicious acts nor the unintended mistakes of people can thwart the purposes of God. Suffering intensified for the Apostle Paul after he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Joseph was snatched away from his father by his jealous brothers, and he languished in prison and was apart from his family for many years. Why did all this happen? I'm sure Joseph had his moments of of quandary. But when he becomes prime minister of Egypt and he supplies food for Egypt and the other nations around and he recognizes his brothers and they come and they finally meet him and then he reveals himself, here's what he says. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for I am in God's place. As for you, referring to his brothers, you meant evil against me. And by the way, what they did to Joseph was evil. It was wrong. And they had to repent of that evil. That was your intention. Some of you wanted to kill me. You certainly wanted me to suffer. And suffer I did. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I'm not sure Joseph understood that way back when he was 17 years old. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people in order to make me prime minister of Egypt so I could supply you with food. That was God's plan. And Joseph could say, I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. Now I do. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. I'm, not going to, I'm a very powerful man in Egypt, but I'm not going to cause you harm. I love you and forgive you. That's a response of, of someone who trusts in the sovereignty of God. Nothing is too trivial to escape the attention of God's sovereign control. Nothing is so great that it's beyond his power to control. The insignificant sparrow cannot fall to the ground unless God wills it. And the mighty Roman army 
cannot crucify Jesus unless God ordains it. So what's our problem in this? God's sovereignty is often a great mystery to us. It's not always apparent. We see the wickedness in the world. We see the pain and suffering that's going on and sometimes in our own life. And that pain and suffering is more real to us than God is in the moment of our adversity. Where is God? What's going on? Has he abandoned me? Am I on my own? Does he care about me? If he could prevent the crisis, why didn't he? If he could stop the heartache, why doesn't he? We don't understand why God doesn't intervene to stop bad things from happening. That's a common question. And some people throw the concept of God over because of suffering in the world. And some people recreate God, as the author of the shack has done. Recreate God to make him something totally different from what the Bible presents him to be. Never judge the character of God by your experience, especially when you're in the midst of pain. Don't judge God's character then. God is who he is all the time. He's always on the job. He's always at work behind the scenes. But his will, his sovereign will, is often a mystery to us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways and unfathomable his ways. What I'm saying is that the sovereign will of God, how life unfolds, is a great mystery to us. To us, not to God. We don't see the purpose God is aiming at. Now, there's an ultimate purpose, his glory, but the purpose in our personal lives, he does. Our responsibility is to trust and, help, and ask God to help us deal with our doubts. We see the unseen hand of God in a remarkable way in the book of Esther. Every circumstance in this book is orchestrated by God, although, as Pastor Dan mentioned, the name God isn't even mentioned in the book. Warren Wiersbe says, His name is nowhere seen in the book, but his hand is nowhere missing. The pivotal point of Esther is chapter 6. Prior to the events recorded in the chapter, the lives of the Jews living in the Persian Empire under... Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is not the name of the leader, it's the title. Just as Pharaoh was the title of an Egyptian leader, Ahasuerus is the title of a Persian leader. The leader here is Artaxerxes the Great of Persia. And there is a man called Haman who hates Jews, he hates Mordecai, and he hates the people that Mordecai belonged to. So he has concocted an evil scheme to kill Jews. No, the end of the story is the tables are turned and the gallows upon which he expected Mordecai to die, Haman dies on those gallows. Let's look at some details. On the fateful night, King Xerxes could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, a record of his reign, to be brought to him and read to him. In the course of the reading, it came to light that Mordecai who was in danger of hanging the next morning, although the king didn't know it, 
Haman never got around to telling the king that was going to happen. Anyways, Mordecai had heard of a plot to assassinate the king and got the word to Esther, who got the word to the king. So Mordecai, the Jew, had saved the king's life. The king asked what recognition had been given to Mordecai, and none had. So on the spot, he decides to have a great celebration to honor Mordecai, who had saved his life. And the very man determined, the very man determined to put Mordecai in the gallows is to prepare all the honor for Mordecai. You talk about irony of ironies. <laughs> so what had to happen to save Mordecai from the gallows and to save the Jewish people in Persia? Why could the king not sleep that fateful, that fateful night? Why did he ask for the records of the facts to be read to him rather than listening to his stereo? Well, I didn't have a stereo. But listen to some music to soothe his soul. Why did the reader of the Chronicles who read to the king read from this particular section which included what Mordecai had done to save the king's life? What are the chances that he could have chosen to read from another section of the annals? When the king learned of Mordecai's service, inquired if he had been rewarded, he hadn't been rewarded, so he decides on the spot to honor Mordecai. Why did the wicked Haman appear at the moment to ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai, but he never got around to mentioning the name of the person he wanted to hang? Because the king commanded Haman to honor a certain man, and Haman said, ah, oh, who would the king want to honor but me? Because Haman had a very powerful position. And what, what ticked Haman off was that he knew Mordecai was a Jew, and Haman was a very arrogant man, and Haman wanted everybody to bow and, you know, to recognize his greatness, and Mordecai refused to do it. When Haman walked by, and Mordecai had some position, but not an important one, everybody stood and honored Haman, not Mordecai. He just let Haman walk on, and Haman was incensed. How dare he not honor me? So, when the king says, I wanted to prepare this great, what should we do to honor a man? The king doesn't mention the man he wants to honor. <laughs> Haman thinks it's himself. And so Haman gives this long list. Here's what to do, here's what to do. Uh, honor such a man. And so the king says, okay, do that, Haman, for Mordecai. Not for you, Haman. It's for Mordecai. Now, as I say, the name of God is not even in the book of Esther. But the providence, the sovereignty of God is all through the book of Esther. That's how God works behind the scenes. God's sovereignty is a mystery to us, and maybe we will understand it. I'm sure we will when we get to heaven, but often not on earth. His sovereignty is irresistible. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14.27, for the, for the Lord of hosts has planned, who can frustrate it? And as for his stretch-out hand, who can turn it back? By the way, there are scores and scores and scores of verses like this in the Bible. Um, Google sovereignty of God on your computer and see what you come up with. Daniel 4.35. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are counted or regarded as nothing, but he does according to his will or as he pleases. This is God. In the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand, that is, hold back his hand, or say to him, what have you done? 